0: A tourist traveling through southern Europe visited a cathedral that had a human skull on display. The guide told his group that it was the skull of the Apostle Paul. Well, the next day in a neighboring city, the group entered another cathedral that also had a skull on display. Again, that of the Apostle Paul. Well, one of the tourists he complained. He said, Now wait just a minute. Something's fishy here. I mean, in two days, we've seen two skulls that are supposedly belong to the apostle Paul. Well, the tour guide replied, he said, that's right. The skull you saw yesterday was Paul as a young man. And the skull you saw today was Paul as an old man. Hey, there were dozens of cities throughout Galatia and Asia, throughout Macedonia and Greece that could have laid claim to having a special relationship with the Apostle Paul. He was not a man who let grass grow under his feet. He was always on the move, sharing the gospel, starting new churches. And at the end of Acts chapter 18, Paul returns to Antioch. After a brief stop, he's off again, and in chapter 19, Paul begins his third missionary journey. We pick it up here in verse 1. And it happened while Apollos was at Corinth that Paul, having passed through the upper regions, came to Ephesus. Now this was Paul's second visit to Ephesus. It was an important city in the Roman world. At the time, its population was 300,000 people. Ephesus was the commercial center of the wealthy region of Asia Minor. People called it the treasure chest of Asia. Ironically, though, Paul discovers that these people who had it all financially were lacking spiritually. For finding some disciples, Paul said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And so they said to him, We have not so much as heard whether there is a Holy Spirit. Now, you remember who had just ministered in Ephesus. It was Apollos. And recall Apollos' deficiency. Acts chapter 18, verse 25 told us that he knew only the baptism of John. Apollos knew how to turn from sin and how to turn to Jesus, but he didn't know how to turn on the power of the Holy Spirit. He was ignorant of the Spirit's baptism. Earlier, we're told that Aquila and Priscilla had to take him aside and explain to him the way of God more accurately. You see, Apollos was guilty of trying to fulfill the great commission while committing the great omission. A lot of people have that problem. Apollos didn't realize the Holy Spirit not only wants to indwell us, but also to empower us. As believers, we can plug into the power of Jesus through his Holy Spirit. And the missing ingredient in Apollos' teaching was being replicated in his listeners. They were believers in Jesus, but not receivers of the Holy Spirit's power. And Paul said to the Ephesians, into what then were you baptized? So they said, into John's baptism. When Jesus told his disciples to go into all the world and to baptize, he provided them a formula. Jesus said that we should baptize believers in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. So, if the Ephesians had been baptized as Christians with that formula, the appropriate formula, then they would have at least heard of the Holy Spirit. But rather than Christian baptism, they had been baptized with John's baptism, a show of repentance. Well, then Paul said, John indeed baptized with a baptism of repentance, saying to the people that they should believe on him who would come after him, that is, on Christ Jesus. Well, when they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus, which is another way to say They were baptized as Christians. Now, sometimes you run across folks who point to verse 5, and they suggest that if you haven't been baptized with this exact verbiage, in the name of the Lord Jesus, you haven't been biblically baptized. That's not true. Again, the phrase baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus is just a way to indicate Christian baptism. In fact, in the context of the passage, if the Ephesian believers had been baptized as Christians, they would have at least heard of the Holy Spirit. For the formula used, taught to us by Jesus in Christian baptism, the proper wording would have at least mentioned the Holy Spirit. Whenever I baptize folks, I always use the language that Jesus gave us. In Matthew chapter 28, verse 19, I baptize you in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Once I was baptizing in the Jordan River when a busload of Europeans, Germans and French and so forth, they got in line behind our group and they wanted to be baptized. Well, we were on a tight schedule that morning, and so Kathy was in the back. She was giving me the no, no, the cutoff signal, you know. But hey, somebody wanting to be baptized by a pastor, that's like saying, Sick them to a bulldog. You're a pastor, man. You're not going to turn people down from getting baptized. And so I started baptizing people. I mean, there were tons and tons of people. I depotized a couple of people to kind of help me baptize. I ended up baptizing at least 40 people that morning. But I'll never forget the last guy. I think he was a German and he was probably drunk. I got a lot to answer for when I get to the judgment seat of Christ. I baptized a drunk German. But when I raised him from the water, he wanted to be dunked again. So I dunked him again. Well, when he came up the second time, he asked for one more. And so I dunked him a third time. Later, someone explained to me that he was baptized three times for the Father and for the Son and for the Holy Spirit. I'm not sure it was necessary, but he at least understood the scriptures. Well, verse six, and when Paul had laid hands on them, the Holy Spirit came upon them. And they spoke with tongues and prophesied. Now the men were about 12 in all. Now before Paul had arrived, when the Ephesians had first believed, the Spirit had come quietly to indwell their hearts. But now he fills them up and overflows their lives. And it gets noisy. They speak in ecstatic utterances. They praise God with the spiritual gift of tongues In unlearned languages foreign to them. And they prophesy in their own language messages from God. See, tongues are praise. Prophecy is proclamation. Both tongues and prophecy are communicative outbursts. Like popping a cork on a bottle. The Holy Spirit that's inside us surges out from us with power. Tongues is us speaking to God, whereas prophecy is God speaking to us. Tongues allows our spirit to vent its praise without our minds having to keep pace. The praise bypasses our limited vocabulary with spontaneous language that we just utter. As God puts it into our mind, we just utter it to him. Whereas prophecy is God's direct messaging, you might call it. We become the mouthpiece through which he speaks to specific people for specific purposes. And when Paul laid his hands on the Ephesians, the Spirit came upon them with this sudden rush of spiritual power through speaking in tongues and through words of prophecy. One New Year's Day, the Tournament of Roses parade was delayed by a float that ran out of gas. It was beautifully decorated with an assortment of roses, but the float sputtered and eventually came to a halt. It was quickly discovered by the organizers that they had forgotten to fill it with gas. And yet here was the irony. The float was sponsored by the Standard Oil Company. A company with vast reservoirs of petrol had run out of gas. And this can happen to Christians. We have a pipeline to God's power. His name is the Holy Spirit. We should never run out of gas. We can ask God to continually fill us and empower us with his Holy Spirit. Verse 8. And Paul went into the synagogue and spoke boldly for three months, reasoning and persuading concerning the things of the kingdom of God. But when some were hardened... And did not believe, but spoke evil of the way before the multitude. He departed from them and withdrew the disciples, reasoning daily in the school of Tyrannus. When opposed, Paul left the synagogue. He rented a meeting hall down the street to continue his discipleship of the new believers, the hall of Tyrannus. Now realize... The Greek work day was from 7 to 11 a.m. and then from 4 to 9 p.m. So from 11 a.m. to 4 p.m., people would beat the heat and they would break for siesta. Each afternoon, folks would go home and they would take a nice long nap. Didn't that sound like a great idea? Where is my siesta? They had a saying. You'll find more people sound asleep in Ephesus at one in the afternoon than at one o'clock in the morning. Well, this passage gives us a glimpse at how hard Paul worked. For two years, he made tents, mornings and evenings, and then he would forfeit his siesta to teach the Bible. See, ministry was Paul's passion, not just his profession. And this continued for two years so that all who dwelt in Asia Heard the word of the Lord Jesus, both Jews and Greeks. Now, God worked unusual miracles by the hands of Paul, so that even handkerchiefs or aprons were brought from his body to the sick, and the diseases left them, and the evil spirits went out of them. Now, notice Luke refers to these miracles as unusual even for Paul. The handkerchiefs were Paul's work cloths that he would use to wipe the sweat from his brow. They were his bandanas. You could call them his survivor buffs. His aprons were overalls that he wore to protect his clothes while he worked. Both articles would soak up Paul's sweat. I read recently where Jimi Hendrix sweatbands sold in an auction for $7,000. Can you imagine? Some poor fellow thought that there was magic in the famous guitar player's Sweat. He figured if Jimmy's sweat-stained DNA somehow trickled onto his hands, then he'd be able to play the guitar like Jimi Hendrix. Of course, it proved a $7,000 disappointment, I'm sure. But this was the idea of pushing this preoccupation with Paul's sweat bands. And believe it or not, God used it to work miracles. Which brings up some questions for us. Was there really something miraculous in apostolic perspiration? Does God ever use this kind of thing today? Is there anything to healing hankies and bandanas of blessing promised by questionable preachers on late-night infomercials? I mean, does God resort to these kinds of gimmicks today? You would think for God... Healing would be no sweat. Realize the Apostle Paul was human just like us. He calls himself the chief of sinners, in fact. Certainly his glands didn't secrete supernatural sweat. What occurred here had nothing to do with perspiration, but with expectation. You see, the Ephesians so associated Paul with God's power that a closeness to the apostle activated their faith. Here's a question for you. If you believe but don't expect, do you really believe? You see, expectation is the trigger to faith. To the Ephesians, God and Paul were so linked together that Paul's buff stimulated their belief in God's healing. And this is how it works with us today when it comes to the laying on of hands, or the anointing of oil, or the celebration of communion, or the raising of holy hands, etc. These props serve the same purpose. God uses them to stir up an expectation and give the believer a point of contact where he or she can release their faith in the miracle at hand. Well, notice verse 13. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists took it upon themselves to call the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, We exorcise you by the Jesus whom Paul preaches. Also, there were seven sons of Sceva, a Jewish chief priest, who did so. Now, immediately after Luke's report of these legitimate healings, he shares an episode showing how everything done in Jesus' name is not necessarily of Jesus. Spiritual power is not caused by the props, or the formulas, or the incantations, or the mechanics, or the celebrities. Spiritual power, spiritual miracles, is caused by God himself. Here God was gloriously at work, but there were these wackos running around who thought that they could take command over God's power. Jewish exorcists, sons of a priest named Skeva, they thought that they could manipulate God. Notice what Luke writes. He says, they took it upon themselves. They thought that through their own technique or ritual, they could pry the power out of God. And they were itinerant exorcists. That means they traveled from place to place, always on the move. They didn't have to take responsibility for their lack of success. It seems these so-called exorcists were always on the lookout for some new incantation or new spell. So when they saw Paul cast out demons in Jesus' name, they figured that his wording would work for them. And so they cried, we exorcise you by the Jesus whom Paul preaches. But here's what happened. And the evil spirit answered and said, Jesus I know. And Paul I know. But who are you? Literally, I'm well aware of Jesus. And I recognize Paul. But I have no idea who you guys are. Then the man in whom the evil spirit was leaped on them, overpowered them, and prevailed against them, so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. Notice the sons of Sceva and Paul, they used the same wording to cast out demons. The difference was that Paul had a real relationship with the living God. You see, the Jews saw Jesus as a spell. Paul served him as the Savior. The power of God is conveyed through relationship, friends, not right or ritual, or recitation. It's a personal faith, not formulas that unleash the power of God. Using the name of Jesus without a relationship with Jesus is like using a gun that's not loaded. These Jews end up bruised and bloodied and naked. We need to be in touch with Jesus before we invoke His name. Possession should always be behind All of our confessions. Well, this became known both to all Jews and Greeks dwelling in Ephesus and fear fell on them all. And the name of the Lord Jesus was magnified. And many who had believed came confessing and telling their deeds. The end result of it all was public confession of sin there in Ephesus. People were openly renouncing their evil deeds. Also, many of those who had practiced magic brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. You know, even today in occult literature, supposedly magical words known as Ephesian letters are used in spells and incantations. Both then and now, the city of Ephesus was infamous for its satanic activity. And notice here too, in Paul's day, when folks were saved, two things happened. People publicly repented of their sin and then they burned any paranormal paraphernalia that they were holding on to. We're told they counted up the value of them and it totaled 50,000 pieces of silver. This was the equivalent of the combined yearly salaries of 150 men. You see, when the Ephesians met Jesus, they tossed into the bonfire their horoscopes and their Ouija boards and their New Age crystals, and their tarot cards, and their Harry Potter books. Notice they didn't hold a garage sale where they could make a profit off the sinful stuff. Rather, they torched the remnants of their past life. They made a clean break with the past, and they pledged to follow Jesus. In the late 1970s, when I first came to Jesus... I had a pretty expensive vinyl record collection. Any of you remember vinyl records? You know what that is? But after giving my life to Christ, I felt prompted to break from my past life and to shatter the records and tear up the album covers and rip up the eight-track tapes. Yes, I'm not old. And toss it all in the dumpster. I'll never forget the night I was at the dumpster throwing my whole record collection into the dumpster. I'm not saying you should, but it was a big moment for me. It was necessary for me. At the time, it was a costly commitment, but I have no doubt that I needed to make a clean break with my past life if I was going to receive all that Jesus had for me. You know, afterwards, what happened in me is what happened in Ephesus. Verse 20, the word of the Lord grew mightily and prevailed. If you want to see the word of God grow mightily in your life and prevail, get rid of that past life. When these things were accomplished, Paul purposed in the spirit when he had passed through Macedonia and Achaia to go to Jerusalem, saying, after I have been there, I must also see Rome. Ultimately, Paul had his eyes on the capital of the empire, but his heart still pulled him toward Jerusalem. Then verse 22, so he sent into Macedonia two of those who ministered to him, Timothy and Erastus, but he himself stayed in Asia, that is in Ephesus for a time, and about that time there arose a great commotion about the way. Recall, the way was one of the early names of Christianity. And here's what caused all the commotion in Ephesus. For a certain man named Demetrius, a silversmith who made silver shrines of Diana, brought no small profit to the craftsmen. He called them together with the workers of similar occupation and said, Men, you know that we have our prosperity by this trade. Moreover, you see and hear that not only at Ephesus, but throughout almost all Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away many people saying that they are not gods which are made with hands. Now this Demetrius, he was the union organizer for the United Idol Workers of Asia. He could see that Paul's insistence on people turning from worthless idols to Jesus was cutting into their business. And so he continues, So now not only is this trade of ours in danger, of falling into disrepute, but also the temple of the great goddess Diana may be despised and her magnificence destroyed, whom all Asia and the world worship. Paul's preaching and the spiritual awakening that it created was causing a crisis among the status quo. Now, Ephesus was popular for many reasons, but its most famous landmark was a temple to Diana. Pagans from the world over worshipped the Greek fertility goddess there in Ephesus. The great temple to Diana was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. It was larger than the Parthenon in Athens. Imagine, 425 feet long by 220 feet wide by 60 feet high. It was surrounded by 127 marble columns. The whole temple was adorned with beautiful engravings and paintings. It was a magnificent structure. And yet in contrast to the beauty of the temple, the image of the idol Diana was ugly and grotesque. It was a squat female figure with a face and covered front and back with mammary glands, symbols of fertility. I suppose you could say that Diana worship was a real bust. (laughs) (laughs) I couldn't resist that. I'm sorry. (laughs) Of course, when you came to Ephesus, it was important that you went home with a little trinket to show your friends where you'd been. A little miniature replica of Diana. Demetrius and the local silversmiths, they made a bundle of money selling these little souvenirs. Idolatry was big business and the gospel had become a financial threat. And take note here. This is how we put sin out of business. Not by picketing or by protesting. Don't worry so much about the supply side of sin. Spread the gospel and it cuts into the demand for sin. Our job is to diminish sin's appeal. If the demand shrinks, then the supply will disappear. In the Welsh revival of 1901, every tavern and pub in Wales bellied up. And guess how many anti-alcoholic sermons were preached? None. Once people were touched by Jesus and filled with the Holy Spirit, people lost interest in their booze. Social reformation came on the heels of a spiritual transformation. If you want to really alter society, start by changing people's hearts. This is what happened in Ephesus. The gospel spread, and the spreadsheet of the silversmith shrunk. Because Demetrius' his cronies felt threatened, they tried to enact some legislation to squelch the gospel. They meet to discuss the shrinking prophets and to stir up a crowd. Now when they heard this, they were full of wrath and cried out, saying, Great is Diana of the Ephesians! So the whole city was filled with confusion and rushed into the theater with one accord, having seized Gaius And Aristarchus, Macedonians, Paul's travel companions. And today when you visit the ruins of Ephesus, one of its main attractions is the huge theater where this mob rallied. We're told by archaeologists that in the days of Paul, it could seat over 25,000 people. And here the union members, they erupt in a frenzy. They all start chanting, Great is Diana of the Ephesians! And while they're chanting, they grab the first believers they can find. Gaius and Aristarchus, Paul's friends. You know, Ben Franklin once said, a mob is a monster with heads enough, but no brains. And this is the case here in Ephesus. And when Paul wanted to go into the people, now now get that, Paul wants to go in to this crazy crowd. The disciples would not allow him. Then some of the officials of Asia, who were his friends, sent to him pleading that he would not venture into the theater. You've got to love Paul's courage, man. He sees a crowd and he thinks this is an opportunity to preach the gospel. Wow, a stadium full of people. I need to preach. To Paul, there was no such thing as opposition, just opportunities. Verse 32 Well, some therefore cried one thing and some another, for the assembly was confused. And most of them did not know why they had come together. I mean, this this was a totally chaotic situation. And they drew Alexander out of the multitude, the Jews putting him forward. And Alexander motioned with his hand and wanted to make his defense to the people. Now, in the Roman world of the first century, when a public uprising occurred, someone usually blamed it on the Jews. Here, the Jewish leader in town, a man named Alexander, wants to make it clear that the Jewish community has nothing to do here with Paul and his efforts. But Alexander's attempt backfires. For when they found out that he was a Jew, all with one voice cried out for about two hours, Great is Diana of the Ephesians. Just the sight of a Jew only inflamed the pagan loyalties of the Ephesians. Verse 35. And when the city clerk had quieted the crowd, he said, Men of Ephesus, what man is there who does not know that the city of the Ephesians is temple guardian of the great goddess Diana and of the image which fell down from Zeus? Sources of antiquity tell us that the original statue of Diana was fashioned of black stone. Probably was made out of a meteor. The local lore claimed it came from Zeus, chief of the Greek gods. The clerk continued, Therefore, since these things cannot be denied, you ought to be quiet and do nothing rashly. For you have brought these men here who are neither robbers of temples nor blasphemers of your goddess. And notice that. Paul hadn't entered Ephesus to launch an anti-Diana campaign. That's not what he was about. Paul had come to preach the gospel. And it was the light of Jesus that had uncovered the darkness. Therefore, if Demetrius and his fellow craftsmen have a case against anyone, the courts are open and there are pro-councils. Let them bring charges against one another. But if you have any other inquiry to make, it shall be determined in the lawful assembly. Here's a city official who bring some reason to this frenzied crowd. He reminds them that they're courts for their legal grievances. And then he warns them, for we are in danger of being called in question for today's uproar. There being no reason which we may give to account for this disorderly gathering. The Roman Empire always frowned on any kind of public unrest. This clerk reminds the crowd that they don't really want the Roman military feeling compelled to invade their city to restore order or to enact martial law. Rome had designated Ephesus as a free city with special privileges. The last thing they needed was a crackdown. So when he had said these things, he dismissed the assembly. And evidently, they all went home. Chapter 20. After the uproar had ceased, Paul called the disciples to himself, embraced them and departed to go to Macedonia. Paul sails from Ephesus on the Turkish coast to now Philippi and Thessalonica and Macedonia. Now when he had gone over that region and encouraged them with many words, he came to Greece and stayed three months. Now it's 58 AD, and Paul is here in Corinth where he writes his letter to the Romans. It's interesting to fit that into this, this uh, timeline. And when the Jews plotted against him as he was about to sail to Syria, he was about to sail back home to Antioch, he decided to return through Macedonia. Paul's about to leave when he sniffs out an assassination plot. Someone's out to get him. And to avoid it, he changes plans. Rather than set sail, he decides to return on foot through Macedonia. And here's the entourage that traveled with Paul. Call it Paul's posse. It included seven men. Zulpatar of Berea accompanied him to Asia, also Aristarchus and Secundus of the Thessalonians, and Gaius of Derbe, and Timothy and Tychicus and Trophimus of Asia. These men going ahead waited for us at Troas. One of Paul's reasons to return through Macedonia was to collect an offering for the famine-stricken church in Jerusalem. The men listed here were the people entrusted to transport the offering for the churches. And notice the personal pronoun, us, and now we. But we sailed away from Philippi after the days of unleavened bread, and in five days joined them at Troas, where we stayed seven days. Luke, the author of Acts, is now traveling with Paul. He says, we. We. He's with him now as he arrives in Troas, 130 miles up the coast from Ephesus. They wait there for a week for a ship home to Antioch. And here's one of my favorite stories, verse 7. Now on the first day of the week, when the disciples came together to break bread, Paul, ready to depart the next day, spoke to them and continued his message until midnight. Now notice a couple of points here. First, the early Christians met on the first day of the week. This might seem trivial, but think it through. For 1,500 years, Jews had met to worship God on the last day of the week, on Saturday, on the Sabbath. Why did the early Christians change their day of worship from Saturday to Sunday? There's only one reason. Church meetings were now a celebration of Jesus' resurrection. Jesus rose from the dead on the first day of the week. This dramatic event budged a ritualistic people out of a proud tradition. The transforming event of Jesus' victory over death is what changed their day of worship. Now second, notice the Christians at Troas, they met Sunday night rather than Sunday morning. Like we do. And the reason? Well, in pagan Rome, Sunday was a work day, not a day off. Believers labored hard all day long on Sunday. And when their job ended, then they met together to worship the Lord. And third, Paul's ship sailed at sunrise the next day, which means this was his last opportunity to speak to the believers in Troas. And so he took off his watch. And you know what that means when a pastor takes off his watch? Nothing. It means absolutely nothing. He took off his watch. In other words, he's not worried about parents getting kids to bed. He's not worried about people having to wake up the next day and go to work. He preached until midnight. Now, if he started his sermon at 7 p.m., that means he preached five long hours. And you think I'm long-winded. I have never preached a five-hour sermon. Close, but never. There's another detail about the room where Paul preached in verse 8. There were many lamps in the upper room where they were gathered together. Now, in the first century, Christians were a strange new minority. And all kinds of rumors had circulated about them. They were accused of sexual promiscuity since they always talked about love. The practice of communion had caused many misconceptions. It was said that Christians ate the body of Christ. Were they cannibals? People said they even drank his blood. Were they vampires? And this and it was because these rumors that the early church lit their meetings with tons of candle power. they lit up the room. Hey, no one dimmed the lights during worship in the early church. They wanted the room to be so bright that there would be no secrets. Now you get the feel for the conditions in the meeting room there at Troas. A Sunday evening after a tiring day at work, a long-winded preacher, a stuffy, smoke-filled room, (laughs) poor old Eutychus didn't stand a chance. Have you ever fallen asleep in church? Oh, wake up! Some of you, I needed to wake up right then. Have you ever fallen asleep in church? Your eyelids start to get heavy. Your shoulders begin to do the slouch. All of a sudden, the head bob comes into play. It can happen. Here's a few examples. I love these pictures. Here we go. (laughs) The question is, do you recognize anybody Yeah, and here's my favorite right here. Here we go. Poor little guy. tried so hard he's tried so hard (laughs) (laughs) hey we have all been there haven't we you laugh but just make sure Vernon's not panning the room this morning with a camera you know Notice verse 9, and in a window sat a certain young man named Eutychus who was sinking into a deep sleep. Now, in fairness to Eutychus, (laughs) just wanted to give you a chance to look up. In fairness to Eutychus there, he might have gone to the window to get some fresh air. I mean, maybe he thought the night air would wake him up. But, he was overcome by sleep. And as Paul continued speaking, he fell down from the third story and was taken up dead. His fall was fatal. <laughs> the man fell three stories, close to 40 feet. He hits the dirt and dies on impact. Hey, I... I've had people get drowsy and fall out of their chair, but never out of a windowsill. Never. But what happened to Eutychus can happen to all Christians. Notice his mistake. He leaves the middle of the room for the periphery. This is how you fall asleep spiritually. You leave the middle for the periphery. And any third floor windowsill is a dangerous place. Eutychus leaves the center of the room for the edges. Beware when you move from the fellowship with other believers and go it on your own. When you leave where the action is, the church, and begin to gravitate toward the edges. That's what sets you up for a fall. When you start to look for air to breathe out there rather than in here, boy, you're in trouble. Notice verse 10. But Paul went down, fell on him, and embracing him said, Do not trouble yourselves, for his life is in him. Reminds me of the man who fell asleep during the pastor's sermon. The pastor shouted at the usher. He said, Wake that fellow up! That's when the usher shouted back at the pastor. You put him to sleep, you wake him up! But <laughs> well, here Paul is being a responsible preacher. Since he put Eutychus to sleep, then he wakes him up. He goes down and he falls on Eutychus, Elisha style, and God works a miracle. And you know, this is how we resuscitate those who fall asleep spiritually, with love. With the warmth of the body, the body of Christ, the church. Love is what revives the sleeper. And we need to come up, had broken bread and eaten, And talked a long while, even till daybreak, he departed. What a night it was. Paul raised the dead, served a meal, and fellowshiped until morning light. And they brought the young man in alive, and they were not a little comforted. They were a lot comforted. They brought the young man in alive, and they were not a little comforted. Obviously, Luke is speaking here of Eutychus. But this past week, I had a pastor write me, and he quoted this verse. He had no idea I was teaching here this week. But he felt that God was applying this verse to my son. He said, Pastor Sandy, Zach will be brought in alive and we'll all be comforted. Please pray with me that that pastor's right. Verse 13. And then we went ahead to the ship and sailed to Asos. There intending to take Paul on board, for so he had given orders, intending himself to go on foot. Now from Troas to Asos is 25 miles. Perhaps the scheduling of the voyage caused Paul to want to walk it instead of uh, riding the boat. Maybe he could walk it as fast as the ship could sail it. We don't know. Or maybe he walked so he could pray. That's what I think. He had stayed up all night long. If he had traveled by boat, he would have fallen asleep. Instead, he takes a prayer walk. And you know, if you have a hard time staying awake, you know what a good thing to do is? Pray and walk. Take a prayer walk. Walk while you pray. And when he met us at Asos, we took him on board and came to Mytilene. We sailed from there, and the next day came opposite Chios. The following day, we arrived at Samos and stayed at Tregelium. The next day, we came to Miletus. The ship was working its way eastward along the Turkish coast. For Paul had decided to sail past Ephesus so that he would not have to spend time in Asia. For he was hurrying to be at Jerusalem, if possible, on the day of Pentecost. From Miletus, he sent to Ephesus and called for the elders of the church. Now, the beach at Miletus is about 28 miles south of Ephesus. You got to understand, if Paul had docked at Ephesus, a thriving church and lots of friends would have forced him to stay there for a few days, perhaps a couple of weeks. He might have spent weeks on shore. He's wanting to get to Jerusalem, so he skips Ephesus, and from Miletus, he sends word to the elders that he's hosting a leadership huddle, an elders meeting. He wants them to attend. And that's where we'll pick it up next week.